think about and use the first piece to do so, to think about the relationship between, it's ironic, we had a conversation along these lines, the relationship between Midrash and the Beit Knesset. Now, not really in the sense of whether these types of Midrashim originated in the Beit Knesset as part of drashot that, um, that rabbis gave their congregations, but a different aspect, and that is the liturgical aspect. This is, with, with a safer like Psikta of Kahana, it's, a, it's really a perfect place to start thinking along those lines, because as I described last time, the order of the different sections in this safer follow um, more or less the order of um, special parshiot, things that happen in the shul, and especially the material that we're studying now, that we're learning together now, we have the, you know, the, the tzlat, the paranuta, the three, um, three parshi, the three haftorot that are said during the three weeks, really during this time. Then we have the shivat and the seven, um, the seven haftorot of a consolation. And finally, two uh, remaining haftorot that are really directed towards tshuva and encouraging tshuva. So really the structure of Sikta Dorov Kahana on the whole sort of testifies to a relationship between the material that's learned in, in, in these types of midrashim and what happens in the shul. But it's much deeper than that. Um, and there's, a, there's sort of a long, there's a long, um, there's a long-standing relationship between the world of Medrash and the world of the Beit Knesset. One, one place that we can see this clearly, um, not as much today because many shall skip these things, but at least in Yom Kippur, um, in other special times with Piyut, right? Piyut team, especially the ones, the early Piyut team of, you know, Khalir is a good example, but many, many of the early Piyut team are made expressly to be said in, in, in Shul, to be said in the synagogue, but they're not simply, as if we could say tefillah is ever simply anything, but they're not simply tefillah, but they're tefillah that's very much in conversation with themes that are found in Medrash, ideas that are found in Medrash. That's one area where there's really a clear relationship between Medrash and the Beit Knesset. We're not really going to do much of that. And then, of course, we have the reading of the Haftarot. Not simply the Midrashim that we're reading are structured according to the Haftarot, but the Haftarot themselves in a sense, are a form of medrash, right? Often, and it's it's not just Hasidic Torah, there is a connection between the Haftorah and the Parsha of the week beyond mere, superfici- mere superficialities, which is pointing sometimes to a deeper idea and can be understood as a type of medrash, especially since, um, you know, we learned, and we'll see a bit more of that today, that medrash is often structured by juxtaposing things in Torah with things in Nevi'im and things in Ketuvim. Meaning the mere use of a Pasuk or a Parsha from Nevi'im to illuminate something in Chumash is a form of Medrash. Now obviously in real Sifra Medrash that connection is illuminated and as is, um, is expanded upon. But simply the connection the, the Haftorot mentioning a, a different part of Tanakh in relation to a part of Chumash is sort of the beginnings of Medrash. And that's, you know, that's a connection that we have in Shul. Um, let's, let's start with, um, with Vav on page 256, which is really from last week. This is at the end of um, the 
Tzlat to Paranut, to the three Haftarot that are read um, right before Tishabav. And this one starts, this Pasuk begins with the beginning of that Haftarah, right? Echa Haitalazona. And it starts with a mere discussion of, um, you know, what does the word Echa mean, philology? But it moves in a direction that shows that its interests here are very liturgical. I, I, don't, I don't think it's such a chiddish. I'll, I'll show you what I mean in one minute. Let's read this um, together. Anyone want to volunteer to read? Great. Okay. Okay. So what does that mean? First of all, those of you who are familiar with, um, you know, with with Gemara, know that when you have a machlok, at sometimes it doesn't say the names of people and argues that they argue, but it simply will list the names. Like in this case, Rabbi, Rabbi Yehuda, which is just an Eretz Yisrael way of saying Yehuda, and Rabbi Nechemia, it lists those two names, and then it goes on to describe what the machloket is. So what's, what does Rabbi Yehuda say, Rabbi Yehuda, about this word Eicha? Uh, that it's the language of rebuke. Right, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Often I think we read it like Rabbi Nechemia, which we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. But he says that it's a language of rebu- rebu- rebuke. In other words, how could it be, oh, you, Jerusalem, who, you know, should be wonderful, how could it possibly be that you've fallen to such depths? And his proof is from Yirmiyahu, where the word clearly is used um, as a form of rebuke, right? How could you say we're wise when clearly you're not very wise at all? Okay, now, yes. So, is it, is it possible that Yehuda would agree that in Megillah Eicha it would be Lashon Kina, but in Yishayahu no, I think the purpose of this, I think the purpose of this, um, oh, and Megillat Eicha you're saying as opposed to Yishayahu. Yeah. Yes, that's that's possible. I'm sorry. Though not, you know, not necessarily. He might he might be trying to make a broader statement about the word, which, which would also have implications in Megillat Eicha. Right. I mean, like, it's just weird to say Megillat Eicha is a criticism. And, like, it's not weird to say that in Okay, okay, you're you're right, but he, you know, he might he might want to. The question is, and it's very common that the chachamim use this sort of almost exaggerating language of "ein lashon zaecha ella lashon techechut," right? It's not. It's absolutely not. You know, "echa," rather it's techut. I think the proof is actually in the pudding. "Ein lashon zaecha lashon techechut." It could be he's pointing specifically to this case. "Ein lashon zaecha lashon techechut." Or he could be trying to make a broader statement. Okay. Now, what's Rabbi Nechemia's opinion? He says, mm-hmm. Right. So he assumes very clearly that in Eicha, it is unambiguous, that it is Kina, as you said, it wouldn't be, it couldn't be um, Tochecha. And he uses that to then illuminate what it means in Yishayahu. Right, and he could he could have multiplied this even yeah. more. I mean, all of Megillat Eicha clearly it's not rebuke, but it's it's mourning. Okay. Shalyavta, yeah. 
אחד ראה אותה בפחזה, אחד ראה אותה בנבלותה. כך משה ראה את ישראל בשל... בשל יבוטן, I believe. Okay. Before we try to figure out what the what the precise relationship is between this mashal nimshal and what preceded it, let's just try to figure out the mashal nimshal right as it stands. So, what's the mashal? What's the story that's being told? So it's about a matrona. Yeah, she had three uh, wedding attendants. But not necessarily wedding or attendants. And this attendance. Okay. It's generally in, in, you know, in the Gemara, it is used in the context of a wedding. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if we have to be referring to a wedding here. Okay. One saw her in when she was tranquil. Mm-hmm. Uh, another saw her when she was upset, excited. Mm-hmm. Excited in a bad way. In a, in a negative, okay. Um, uh, and, and finally, third saw her when she, in her disgrace. Correct. Whatever the disgrace was. Okay. okay. So who's the matrona in this? Uh, you know, in the name Shal. Well, it's well, Israel. Okay, good. And that and that's how the psukim proceeds. So yeah. Moshe is the first. You know, Shushvin. It's interesting to think of Moshe as an attendant of this. You know. A matrona is really like a sort of a high-status lady. Um, so Moshe is like, you know, their attendant and really sort of less chashuv in a way because his ultimate goal is to serve B'nai Yisrael. So he sees us in our shalva. I heard that some chavutah weren't so happy with that and we'll get to that in a second. So he, and yet he says, Echa salavadi. Yeah, Okay, so how do how do we how do we deal with this? Yes. Right, or is it really in Shalva to begin with? I mean, let's you know let's remind ourselves as to what's going on in Tvarimalev. Correct. And it's going to be simply too much. Yes, and you're go- so you're going to, and of course, it's just the fact that it's going to exist is great, but, like, not one person can handle it. It's just a factual Good. observation. Yes, Chava, you look... So we were having a debate. I, I think it's a muffled depression in what this is referring to. I was referring to the, the judges that were appointed from Israel versus the judges appointed to the Halokha. Mm-hmm. When the Israel seemed to be a little bit more innocent, like, yeah, people, you have... Three million people living together. There are four cases that come up, and it's not such a big deal. But the ones in Bahalot, right after right, the Shavim Sekinim, that's, that's more negative. 
So I think I think the main the knee jerk objection, maybe just talking about myself when I read this, is I'm influenced by what happens in Shul nowadays when we read that pasuk, right? We'll get to that in a minute, but I, I think a very fair reading is with you know those parshanim who say that he's recounting the there are too many court cases. There's nothing terrible. It's really a time of shalva, and um, he, he nevertheless he uses the word echa. I don't know. That's the. I can't carry them on my own. And the fact that Moshe is saying it, that was done in front of Moshe. Yitro says it to Moshe and Yitro. So the whole question of whether that itself is the same story. Correct. We don't. We always have this question in Devarim, because Devarim is a retelling of, you know, previous stories in Tanakh, and often those in Chumash, and often those stories seem to have parallels. You know, it's a very similar kind of story that occurs in Yitro, you know, in Balotcha. So we often don't know what precisely Moshe is talking about, and that's why the Parshanim, you know, dispute. Um, okay, so that seems to be what it's talking about, and it does seem to be at the time of Shalva, and Moshe uses the word Echa. Next, you know, how about the next case? So the next case... That doesn't seem to fit to me. In other words, if Yishayahu says Echa Haital is I would think then he sort would have... Senior in disgrace. Correct, but still, but when did Yeshayahu prophesy? But before the destruction. So Yeshayahu, you know, wasn't around at the time of the destruction. I think that's what the word, you know, fachazah refers to. You know, things are getting like frenetic and really heating up, but it hasn't come to its head. So the word Eicha can also describe events of that nature. And finally, and this is really, I think, the one that has no dispute, I w- and maybe you're right, rev- even Rav Yehuda wouldn't uh, disagree with the meeting here, Yemiyahu sees them in, their dis- in her disgrace. The disgrace, obviously, is the destruction. And he says, Eicha Yashva Bedad. So what's the relationship exactly between this mashal um, and the Machloket Rav Yehuda of Nechemia. I mean, if we wanted to be really yeshivish about this, we could try to see how Rav Yehuda would explain this mashal according to his opinion, and how Rav Nechemia could do so according to his opinion. I think there's something a little different going on here. Anyone have a suggestion, again, as to what the relationship is between the mashal and nimshal and the previous uh, Machloket about the meaning of the word Eicha? I mean, how did you parse this? So, I mean, my thoughts are, and this is just the beginning, my thoughts are that the Machlok Rav Yehudin Remechemia is predicated on an, an assumption that words can have different meanings in different contexts in Tanakh. Um, so, Rav Yehuda, you have, this actually, you can sort of draw the board, you have A, B, C. So, the, you know, as we pointed out as we went through the Machloket, this B, Eicha, Haitalazana, is the one that's an unknown. A is known and C is known. Right? So, A in this case is, what is it from your meow? How are we like. What's the Lashon again? Eicha Tomru Chachamimanachnu. Eicha Tomru is A. And this is. 
Echa Yashra Bedad, and all the other Echas in the Book of Echa. The question seems to be, in the Machlok, it is how to define this Echa the middle. One opinion takes from here, and one opinion takes from here. There's another, that sort of opens up a question as to how to interpret language, how you can use your concordancia when you learn Tanakh, broader questions of really parshanut. And I think the mashal, in a sense, is addressing that question or that phenomenon. But it does so in a different way. It does so in really charting a trajectory of the word. This is my opinion, um, and I don't know if this is really what's going on in the, in the Medrash, but I think there is some ambiguity when Moshe says, Echa salavadi, as much as it is a time of shalva, that language does sort of, it's sad, it's troubling. And even if we think about the story of the matrona, right? this matrona is linked in a similar way by the word Echa. She has three attendants who th- see her from three different vantage points, and each time, so to speak, use the word Echa, right? That's sort of how the nimshal relates to the mashal. At the first, you know, the first moment when the matrona, when the shushvin sees the matrona in her um, placidness and, you know, when everything's fine, that is Moshe, sees B'nai Israel and everything is hunky-dory, he says, Echa salavadi. Now things aren't really hunky-dory when he uses that kind of language. That's, I think, what the Medrash is trying to say. And that progresses, right? The next stage is with Yeshayahu. There, it's the next Shushvin. He sees the same Matrona, but from a different vantage point at a different moment. And he uses the word Echa also. But now the, the word Echa is tinged a little differently. It has a different connotation. It's not entirely Echa of destruction, but it's certainly a much more depressing and dark Echa. And finally, the third Echa um, which the third Shoshvin sees when the Matrona is utterly disgraced, right? A Matrona is really a graceful lady, is a high-class woman, almost the antithesis of disgrace, and here she is disgraced. That finally is a realization of, you know, the dark and doom Eicha. So I think the Mashal, you know, sort of works with pointing out how these, that the words can shift in meaning, but, and this is my, you know, the, what I'm not entirely sure about, even at the beginning, there was already a sense that you know things wouldn't progress um, along the best lines. Yes, I saw a couple of hands. No, no hands. Okay. Yes. Was the korban? Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So in other words, the warning could be part of it also. Now I think I think where this um, where this you know mashal is coming from, so to speak, is not really just someone looking through a concordancia, or in those days someone thinking about all the times echa occurs. But I think is linked to the liturgy and what happens in the Beit Knesset. Right. These three occurrences of the word Eicha actually happen really in very, you know, very close to one another, especially this year, for that matter. Right. This year we have Shabbat Chazon is on Shabbat, obviously, right before Tisha B'Av. So you have you have Eicha Salavadi read during 
Dvarim, which is read in that Shabbat. Dvarim is always read right before, um, right before that. Now, I don't. What's amazing is that I don't know if that's necessarily true, especially because Psikta of Ghana seems to be working according to the triennial cycle. But there is this certainly happens later, and and as we saw a bit in the toast vote, the the liturgy from Psikta of Ghana does um, does make its way into Ashkenaz and becomes really Arminag. Uh, re- against the Bavli. But again, we read Tvarim, we read the word Eicha, there's a minhag in Sabbatei Knesiot, it's a much later minhag, the Psikta didn't know of this, I would assume that you would read Eicha Salavadi with the trap of Eicha, right? It's really jarring, because you're not supposed to have any signs of mourning on Shabbos, but we let that one go in some shults. Then you have the Haftorah, read immediately after, which is Eicha Haitalazona. And finally, on Sunday this year, or you know, generally the next week, when you have Tisha B'av, then you have um, you know, the dark, the, the truly dark Eicha. So there already is really a linkage in Beit Knesset between these three, these three Eichas. And I think the attempt to you know, chart a trajectory is somewhat of a way of making sense of those three Eichas. Yes? Um, between the first one and the second one, the second one is accusatory. Correct. One is not. It's just like wonder or questioning. Right. So right. But again, it depends on how we interpret that event, that episode. Is it referring to Moshe simply needs some help and needs um, Yitro to, um, or Yitro tells him to go elect some new officials? Or is it a retelling of the story that appears in Palotra where people, where Benesel complains, Moshe can't take it anymore, and he asks, they're ingrateful, and he asks for um, Shivim Sakinim. So I think it plays with that ambiguity. Now, you could interpret this Medrash that really the first time is complete Shalva. I just think it loses, loses a little bit of its power. Um, if, you know, the first Eicha is just a completely innocent Eicha, and suddenly by the second Eicha of Eichai Telezona, you're suddenly, you know, dealing with a much, much more troubling situation. Okay, um, let's move on to the next, the next um, medrash, and this is another vav, but on page two hundred seventy-two. Okay, so now this is going to be an example of the um, this this method that's used in medrash in some medrashim very often, actually, called the chatima. Now again, talking about shul, we also have a version of the chatima. Remember, the chatima is very different than the peticha. Not simply because the peticha or the petichta form in medrash you starts at the beginning of the medrash and uses a different pasuk and has nothing to do with consolation. And the chatima is all about consolation, as we'll soon see. But in shul, the whole concept of chatima, of ending on a note of consolation, also occurs outside of the direct context of medrash or a sermon for that matter. And that is, many haf, some haftorot, right, are very hard-hitting. Right? The Nevi'im ultimately, their job wasn't really to make us feel good, but was to rebuke us um, and rebuke other nations. We have this funny thing that we do in Shul that we don't like to end on a scary um, or difficult note. So even if the last pasuk of that section of, of the haftorah, or from you know, that section that we're reading, is very negative and very scary. We'll always, you know, look back a pasuk or two prior to that and find something that has more consolation in it. We even do this on Tishabov. right? On Tishabov, 
The last Pasuk, I forget because I try to put it in my mind. It's terribly depressing. Let's actually just look it up. And we don't read the last, the congregation does not read the last Pasuk. It says, That's the second to last Pasuk. The last Pasuk is, Ki ma'os ma'asitanu kafatsta aleinu ad ma'od. So, and actually in this Tanakh, they did a very nice job. Underneath that, in little letters, it says, The reason why we repeat that Pasuk is because we don't want to end on Ki ma'os ma'asitanu kafatsta aleinu ad ma'od, but we want to end with, you know, that sense of hope. In other words, even when we read certain things in Shul, we already have sort of this form of the Khatima. And we'll see in, in this example that we begin with a very negative approach to a certain event, a certain um, text, and nevertheless, there's sort of an effort to end on a positive note of consolation. That's what happens in this specific Madrash, and in a sense, that's what the Shiva and the Nechemta are all about. Um, and, you know, I think we're sick to do have kind of working off of that. So any anyone else? I saw another hand before to read the Medrash. Did you want to read? Yeah, great. Right. So we have a plain words here. A Pasuk in Yirmiyahu talks about the fact that your lovers have forgotten you. And, you know, we have this description of Makat Oyev, right? The hitting of the enemy. But what does the Medrash do with it? Instead of Makat Oyev, it does. What is Makatiyah. So we have a little play on words here, um, which will allow for, and I didn't, even get a, I didn't even tell you to learn all of you know this entire section, which will sort of open up a way of looking at Harban. Um, from the perspective of Eov, that what we received during Chorban wasn't simply a maka, wasn't simply that we were hit, but we were hit in a very similar way to the hitting of Eov. And that idea is expressed through, you know, playing around with those, the Yud and the Vav to, instead of saying makat oyev, to say makat Eov. Okay, so now let's hear what some of the parallels are. And there's a long list here. Okay, so the first, you know, the first parallel is simply who the attackers were. Eov is is um, attacked by these Kasdim, and so too Yishalayim is placed into the hands of Kasdim. Okay? Okay, so fire as well is the is the means of destruction. Cheres. Okay, yeah. Right, so in both cases, there is the use of these pottery shards. Um, in Eov and also regarding Yushalayim. But how, you know, in the case of Yushalayim, how could Yushalayim used to be, you know, com- compared to wonderful things? Now it's just the leftover, you know, broken pottery shards. Shards. Um, okay, keep on going. Okay, return to the land. Banishment from the land, actually. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so there's the wearing, the donning of sackcloth in both cases. Right, so the placing of of dirt or dust on the on the head in both cases. Right, so in both cases, Eov is asking for chanina, for sort of grace. And also in the case of Yushalayim, Yushalayim does not receive any chanina. And finally... So in both cases, the punishment is is really ultimately traced back directly to the hand of God, both in Yehov and in in Yeshayahu. Okay, so so far we have a long list of parallels between Yehov um, and Yushalayim. Of course, Yehov symbolizes the ultimate, you know, grieved um, person and it becomes very powerful to compare Yushalayim to Eov simply in that sense because Eov personifies as one single person all of the tragedies that occur to Yushalayim. But the real punchline and the you know direction of this whole section is for the Chatima. And that's that's the next line. I'm Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Nehemia. Kiflayim. Okay, so what's the um, what's the punchline? Um, well, it's only a positive note. <laughs> Correct. Just like Eo, yes, he was you know hit doubly. He was he was hit doubly, but nevertheless he received as merit you know double that, or really you know multiplication of that. So to Yerushalayim was you know consoled despite being you know hit doubly was consoled doubly and the proof the proof of this is nachamu nachamu ami it doesn't simply say nachamu ami comfort my people but comfort comfort now i know whenever you know <laughs> almost whenever i mention this the end of the the end of sefer eov when eov gets his reward everyone says obviously it's not a real true nachama he lost all his children wonderful he gets you know seven new children but I don't think that the Medrash is harping on that. Ultimately, Eov is rewarded, even though he was um, he was punished terribly. And so to Yishalayim is consoled, um, um, you know, double, doubly, even despite the fact that she was punished doubly. Yes. Correct. They're very different circumstances. Eov is a very troubling one. It seems that he's harmed because the Satan wants to test him. Um, and he survives. And with Yushalayim, you can you know look throughout Tanakh and find plenty of sins um, and reason for why Yushalayim is harmed. So good question. Ultimately, why you know what does the comparison do for us? I think it does a few things, at least for me, and I'd like to hear what you think. I think, again, like I said before, personifying. When you talk about a national tragedy, because it's national, because it's so great, it often can sort of be impersonal and corporate, right? Okay, this nation fell, even though it's millions of people. By personifying and by taking a character from Tanakh who 
who really exemplifies getting punished, getting you know, getting hit hard. That has a you know great emotional value in allowing us to understand what happened, what happened there. But I really think the Medrash is all about the end, and it's about this idea. First of all, you know, the Medrash is simply trying to explain what the words Nachamu, Nachamu, what, why it's doubled, right? So in a very, very uh, superficial plane, <clears throat> it's trying to explain where does the double, um, you know, consolation come from? Because it comes from um, a similar idea to Eov, where Eov is, is, you know, loses his children and receives a multiplication of children. I think it's seven times what he had before. If I remember correctly, but since I have a Tanakh in front of me, why don't I just open it up? Anyone remember what Eo gets at the end? I think he what? Twice as much? That's what it is? Let me just see. Hold on. How many did he have in the beginning? Oh, so he gets the same number of kids, but he gets doubled in property, right? Let me see. Right, and here he has Abbasar Elafzon Vesheshelafim Malim Elafzon. Right, Semed Bakar Elafzon. Okay, I'm sorry. So he has the same number of children at the end. Shiva Banim and Shalosh Banot, but he's doubled in property. Okay. So, in other words, why? You know, what's the doubling? What's the poetic justice at the end? That sort of parallels what happens with Yerushalayim. And as much as Yerushalayim will be struck, and is struck terribly, not only will Yerushalayim be restored, but will be restored doubly. Right. So that's the second message here. Again, you know, this is part of the cycle that we read right around Tishabov time. We're still living in a time of Kharban. There, they're only living a couple of hundred years, a few hundred years after Kharban. And this kind of message is very similar to the Rabbi Akiva story and a lot of other similar stories, where despite the fact that you experience the destruction firsthand, there will be ultimately not simply a consolation, but, you know, twofold, it will be even greater than before. I don't know if that satisfies you. I think that's part of what the Medrash is trying to do with the parallel. But it also goes beyond that. This is just the beginning of a, a new approach, so to speak, to Kharban. I mean, this is, this is a p'ticha, and I mean that almost literally, to understanding Kharban. Right? When we when we spoke about Pticha and what that form does in the first you know the first time that we learned together, <clears throat> I spoke about the idea that you know of intertextuality by using a different you know a different text entirely from the canon, but from a different part of the canon entirely, you know simply by quoting something else um, that has bearing on the text in front of you, everything is illuminated. You have a new vista, a new way of looking at that material. I think Eov here is functioning not simply, you know, to show the doubling of the Nachamu Nachamu, but as we'll see, we didn't do Zion, but it's also, you know, happens in Zion, um, that there is a use, an intertextual use of the events that take place with Eov to help illuminate the events of um, Harban and ultimately of consolation. So since our focus is consolation, that's what we're going to do here. Let's move on to Chet. Right, and this is this is sort of sharper and a little, a little uh, more hard hitting. Who here has learned Eov, and not simply the first, you know, couple of prakim in the par- in the last prak at the end. I'm learning it now. Okay, good. So most of us, 
when we learn Eov, the hardest part, which is the middle, I don't know, 40-some-odd prakim, uh, we stay away from. The words are extremely hard. It's very hard to understand the narrative, whatever narrative there is. Um, but if you were to summarize for me what happens in the middle of Eov, you know, what would you tell me? At the beginning, Eov gets destroyed, and he doesn't, or he seems not to um, protest. At the end of Eov, God comes down with this sound and light show. It's unclear exactly what the message is. And then, as we just saw, there's this poetic justice. Right? What happens at the end, in the middle, is hard to decipher, but what, you know, what's the storyline? What, what happens there? Good. Good. Right, they're trying to do a few things. It, it progresses. First, they try to, I mean, it depends which friend, but tries to justify why he's getting punished. What happens, you know, later on, and depending on the friend, is there's also, you know, cons- they actually, each time they come, there is a consolation. Some of them go right into the rhetoric of, you know, it's all your fault, which obviously we know as readers of Sefer Eov that that's not the case. That's the ultimate irony. And when they come, one of the times when he's comforted, comforted, and he doesn't like what he hears, actually he pretty much never likes what he hears from his friends, he says, how could you give me these, you know, consolations of hevel, of nothingness? Okay, so what does ma'al mean? So that is the first debate here. Amr Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana, Divrichem Tzuchim Miruk. Your words need, what's miruk? Anyone look it up? Not really. I heard someone say polish. Polish, in other words, it's really a smelting process. You need to take away the dross of your words. And Rabbanina Marine divrichem sotrim zedze, which is really, you know, is almost immediately understandable you know, with what the basic meaning of the word ma'al, um, that there's some kind of contradiction going on here in your words um, and therefore they're useless. Okay, so ultimately, or I should say immediately, Rabbi Abba Barkan and the Rabbanin are explaining a Pasuk and Eov. But that's then used and illuminates the Nechama that Hashem tries to be Menachem B'nai Yisrael in Yerushalayim really, in Yeshayahu. So in other words, we're, here we're, we're, we're taking this comparison between Eov, right? Makat Oyev, Makat Eov, and sort of taking it to another level. Not simply to the Makah, but also to the Nechama. And we could learn, if you learn something about a Nechama and Eov, that is just as applicable to our situation of Chorban, to understand God trying to be Menachem, um, Yushalayim. And then you have a very long section. Amr Kadesh Baruch God says to the prophets, and many prophets, as we'll see, Lechuv and Achamut Yushalayim. Go and comfort Yushalayim. <clears throat> so then, Halach Hoshea Lenachma. So Hoshea goes to console them. Amr La, he says to her, meaning to Yushalayim, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shalchani Yetzlecha Lenachamecha. God has sent me to you to console you. Amr La, Ma Biyadech. Right, what's in your hands? What do you have to console us with? It's already, you know, very accusatory. So he quotes a pasuk from his own sefer, Hosea. Right, this is God's message uh, that he delivers in the hands of Hosea. I will be like the dew to you, O Israel. Amra. So just like Eov, really, you know, harshly responded to the consolation of his friends. 
So to Yerushalayim responds, Et Molamerli, yesterday you said to me, Hika Ephraim Sharsham Yavesh Pri Bal Yasun. This description of really Ephraim, it's almost the opposite of dew. Right, Ephraim is, you know, dry, dry fruit, not the good kind, but won't be able to produce anything anymore. And now you're telling me suddenly that you are due to me. You are, you know, like life-giving moisture. Which one should we believe? To the first one or to the second one? So this seems to be sort of working with the Rabbanan's explanation of Ma'al as a stira, as a contradiction. And again, because we know that Makatiyov, Makatoyev, Makatiyov, we apply that story of Eov to the Necham of Yushalayim. So you're trying to bring me a prophecy that, you know, that pretends Nechama. Well, yesterday you told me, and it's another quote from that Sefer, a prophecy um, that was negative. So how are we to reconcile the stira? And essentially, and we don't, we're not going to go through all of this, um, I did hear some, Chav, I heard you guys trying to work out the chronology. Is that what you were trying to do? Okay. That's definitely an interesting take. I didn't get to do that myself. Did you find anything interesting? Or? It's, it's all Except for, wait, it's all Treyasar's order? Is that what you said? It's all my order of Treyasar. Right. Okay. So part of this is if you, if you, there's a, in Baba, in Baba Batra, there's a discussion as to what the order of um, Tanakh is. And then we should have talked about the different orders of Treyasar as well. Our order of Treyasar is one of many Minhagim, right? The one that we, you know, that we have in our regular Tanakh. So it could actually work out according to one of the, you know, accepted orders of Treyasar. It is, it is going in our order. Oh, it is going, except for Yonah Novadi, you said. No, we're not here. Oh, we're not here. Oh, beautiful. Okay. No, Amos? Hoshea is the first. Yeah, Hoshea is at the first, at the beginning. Okay, so either way, we have, that's very interesting. So good. So it goes in the order of um, of, of our Treyasar. Either way, the pattern repeats itself. We're not going to read through all of it now, even though a lot of it is very interesting um, and isn't rep- repetitive at all. Um, and we'll go, we'll go to the end. I just want to actually say one thing about repetition, um, especially in this case, but we even had it before, where the same idea is repeated over and over and over again. Some, you know, what sort of in, in, in short, that testifies to an oral context. When you're reading something like this, it's very, it, it's very draining and, and, and um, boring. When you hear it, when it's an oration sometimes, and this is why some people think that these midrashim originate in, in, in a Beit Knesset setting, but even in a Beit Knesset setting, you should really take this to the table whenever you learn Chazal, even Gemara, but that's a whole other discussion. This is oral, oral literature. So it's not written down. It only is written down much later. And when you're trying to get an idea across, you're trying to get a message across, you will repeat the same theme over and over again with variation. So it goes through every single, you know, every pretty much every single Navi of Treyasar to, to convey this idea that their words are contradictory. One time they say that, you know, Hashem is going to bring destruction on them, and later all of a sudden they're, they're talking about consolation, and that's why B'nai Israel, you know, doesn't want to be consoled. The final, um, the end of the Medrash, uh, and which again is the punchline, is, um, I went to the wrong page, hold on. Uh, what page are we on? Yes. 
276. Right? So they, they we do the last one with um, Malachi. You said a good you said a good you're saying a good prophecy now, but you know, you just said a negative prophecy. Emli Khefitz Bahamar Shem Tzvakot. So this is line eight on page two seventy six. So the prophets go to a Kadashbahu of Amrulo and they say Ribono Lalamim. Lo kibla la Yushalaim Lihitznachem. Yushalaim refuses to be consoled, to be comforted. Amr Lahem, Akadashbahu, Anivatem, Nelech Mininach Mena. So we, you and I, you and I, you plural and I will go together. I won't simply send messengers, but I will be part of the process. And that's why Havei Nachamuach Nachamuami. That's why it says this language of Nachamu Nachamuami with the plural and also with the repetition. And now it goes into the detail. Nachamua Nachamuami Nachmuel Yonim Nachmua Tachtonim. It's trying to try to it's trying to emphasize what the doubling language is. Nachmua Chaim Nachmua Mavet Nachmua Bolamazen Nachmua Bolamaba Nachmua Alasar Hashvatim Nachmua Shevet Yehuda Benyamin. All these doubling, all these double experiences. Of the Chorban are finally be, being reconciled. Is kind of the last take. With me, by me. Now there is another Medrash, which. Um, where is that? That follows the same theme on page 270. I know you didn't prepare it, but let's just look at it very quickly. Is that it? It's talking about what's special about Yeshayahu. And it notices, um, you know, actually, I'm not going to do it from here. We don't have to do it from here. We don't have time. I assigned a Tosvot to you. You can look, it's a very interesting Medrash, but we don't have time to do it. I assigned a Tosvot to you, which deals with how the liturgical context of the Shivat and right now, you know, in our day. <clears throat> if you look in the Gemara at the end of Megillah, which is interested in setting out what the different things we read at different occasions, um, you'll be shocked to know that the only thing it has to say about these this time of the year is the top line on page, what is it, Lamed Aleph and Mabiz, Rosh Chodesh Av Shechal Yot B'Shabbat, Maftirin Chachichem Modechem Sana Nafshi, Hayu Alay Torah. which not only doesn't it give the full picture as to, you know, all the Haftorah, the three um, tragic of Torah and then the Shivda Nechemta that are read, but it actually disagrees with our practice. But it says specifically, if Rosh Chodesh Av falls out on Shabbos, then you read Yeshayahu Aleph. Now, our practice is we have these two Haftorah from Yirmiyahu that we first read, and then the Shabbos right before Tisha B'Av we read, you know, this is really from the same Parsha, Echai Telezonah. They're just explaining why you read it on Rosh Chodesh the Shabbos. And that's why it says it quotes that pasuk of Chodshichem Modechem. So the practice is completely different that we do nowadays, and that virtually every Beit Knesset, and according to every tradition, does. Where did our minhag come from? So Tosfot, I mentioned to you that even before we found Psikta of Kahana in manuscript, we we shown him have it. They call it Psikta with that Rav Kahana usually, um, and that's where it comes from. The top of the Tosfot, he says, So if Rosh Chodesh falls on Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh Av, so we have this Haftorah from Yirmiyahu, Shemud Varsham, 
which is what we do, right? Now, why do we do this? Generally, and this is almost unheard of, we use the Bavli. The Bavli is what defines our, our minhag, our halacha. It's very rare that we follow anything from Eretz Yisrael, be it Yerushalmi, certainly a medrash like Psikta, why would we be following it? Now, he doesn't he doesn't really explain why we follow, but he simply says, And then he goes through them. We read these three special of Torah. Then we read the Shiv Nechemta. Okay? Now, it's an interesting historical question why this happened, why the Minag came to be um, um, that we read, you know, that we follow the Psikta of Kahana. We don't follow what's in the Bafli. I'm sure if, if anyone is from Tinek, I'm sure... Rabbi Kenafogel could tell you a lot about this concept, but the Bali Tosfut in many ways actually, obviously they usually rely on the Bavli, but bring with them, especially in Ashkenaz, Minhagim from Eretz Yisrael. Right? So even though in Bavel and, you know, the Jewish community in Bavel from the Gaonim and on obviously rely on the Minhagim and the Bavli, Ashkenaz and the Tosfot often bring these Minhagim. They don't really bring them. This is what's being done in the Shul because there is an interesting relationship between Minhag Eretz Yisrael and what's going on in Ashkenaz. Okay, that's an interesting historical point. But what's fascinating is what happens in the middle of the Tosvos, after listing the order of the Shiva de Nechemta, um, he then talks about a very complicated case. Did anyone get to see the Tosvot? Or not really? Yeah, I didn't really give you enough time. He talks about a complicated case, um, a calendrical situation, where you're going to have to shift the order of some of the, basically to take Sosasis, from the Shiv de Nechemta and place it in between um, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. In other words, if there's a Shabbos in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. It's a bit complicated to figure out why you would have to do this, but basically there would be a clash between the Shiv de Nechemta and then the two, you know, Tshuva Haftorah that follow it. So there's a clash. One approach is to break up the order of the Shiv de Nechemta, and the other approach is to not break it up and basically deal with the problem later on, perhaps even skipping one of the special tshuva of Torah. Okay, so that's that's what Tosfa talks about. It's fascinating, though, when Rabbeinu Tam says, do not break up the order of the shivda nechemta. These seven of Torah must be read. They must be read as a unit, and they must be read together. And we're about in the middle of the Tosfa. I'll just read what he call, he calls the other opinion by very nasty names. V'lo kedivrei rav ha'chovel ha'ufeich o'mivalbel. Do not follow the Rav, who is destructive, who turns things over, who messes things up, that he messes with the order of the Shivda Nechemta, and he disrupts the unit of the Shivda Nechemta. So Rabbeinu Tam is adamant that you need to keep these Haftorah together. The Shivda Nechemta must be read as a unit. And there's a discussion as to why this might be. Today actually happens to be my anniversary with Daphna. And at my wedding, she, she... told me a very interesting piece of Torah from the Rav, which actually appears in that brown Sefer for the three weeks. I forget what it's called. It's by a YU Rosh Hashiva. Um, she actually gave me this this part of um, this part of my little Dvar Torah that I said at the Chassantish. So it has, it has a very dear place in my heart. But there's a, <coughs> the order of the Shiv de Nechemta is obviously extremely important, and you can see that in the Psikta. 
the psikta is really builds up, you know, it already testifies to the min, the minhag that these are the seven haftarot that are read. But why these seven and why this order? So there's an avudraham, which I was looking for in the space manager and couldn't find. But there's an avudraham. If you have um, Barilan, you'll be able to find it. The avudraham is a Rishon who um, talks about tefillah and the order of tefillah. And he explains what's special about these haftarot. So what's the order? And it really is, is related to this, you know, this medrash. Initially, Nachamu, Nachamu Ami is predicated on the fact that B'nai Israel doesn't want to receive consolation. There are the, the, really the doubling of the language, Nachamu, Nachami, right? The, the, lady, the lady in this place, Yushalayim, you know, protests too much, is the fact that, you know, you need to say Nachamu, Nachamu. It's not simply let's console Yushalayim, but there's like a lot going on. There's an attempt to console. And that's sort of read um, by, by this version of the Medrash that the Vudraham quotes, as that HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attempts at consolation were initially unsuccessful, right? which is what we just learned in a way. HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attempt at consolation is compared to Eov's friends at consolation, which fell flat, which Eov said are divrei hevel. They didn't work. right? In our Medrash, we saw that HaKadosh Baruch Hu came, but the Nevi'im, that solved everything. And that's sort of what happens there. If you follow to the next week, and I'm just looking in, in the Tosfos to remember the order. So first you have Nachamu, Nachamu. That's God trying, where the prophet's trying to console. Then Matomar Tzion Azavani Hashem. Tzion says, you have forsaken me, Hashem. This is all in the Vudraham. So the Avudraham says, because Tzion doesn't see, doesn't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu coming himself to console, according to this version, but simply sending the, um, the Nevi'im, so Tzion says, I won't be consoled. Azavani Hashem, God has forsaken me. The next, the third week after Tishabov is Anisoara, La Ruchama, right? That, you know, that Yerushalayim and, and Sion is this, you know, stormy, unconsolable, um, in this state of, un, you know, not being consoled. And then finally, the fourth week after this sort of back and forth, we have Anochi Anochi, right? I, Anochi Anochi Anachamecha. I, and again, an emphasis, a doubling of the language, I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will comfort you. And finally, Rani Akara, this is the fifth week. As a result of that, you know, the Akara, the barren one is now rejoicing, Kumi Ori and So Sasis. Right, those last three weeks are finally sort of pure, unbridled joy. And the Tosos actually even makes um, reference to this. He says, that the way of consolation is for it to, you know, get greater and greater and get stronger and stronger. So it could be, and this is, I think, what the Rav suggested, and this is what Dr. told me, and this is what I said uh, six years ago, that <laughs> that the order is so important of the Shiv Nechemta because it testifies to a, pro, you know, really to to progress in the Chama. Initially, it's sort of a false start. Akash Baruch tries to be Menachem. It doesn't really work entirely because he sends the Nevi'im, and the Nevi'im had castigated us before. But finally, by the fourth week, we, you know, we agree to be consoled and are ultimately, you know, consoled. I think it's really an incredible medrash, even though it's sort of an Avudram Torah on the medrash that we just read, because it testifies to the difficulty in consolation, um, which, which comes from this comparison with Eo. That initial difficulty in consolation. We weren't going to be consoled so easily after the Kharban. We were beaten badly. And it takes time for Kadesh Baruch Hu to kind of regain the trust 
and ultimately um, be menachemas. So we're going to stop here. Next, on, on Wednesday, we're going to learn a completely different kind of medrash, a tanchuma. It'll even be a little halachic. So we're kind of le- leaving um, leaving behind this whole world of medrash. We spoke about patichta. This time we spoke about um, achatima as a means of consolation. And may we all be consoled. But after Tishba, no, even before. <laughs> we need it now. Hmm? It's on hold. I don't know how to put it on off. Oh, I think it's okay. Yeah,